Try It, You Like It, the podcast where we get together and we discuss a book and a movie centered around a common theme. I'm Joseph Finn, and with me tonight are my co-hosts, Amy Watts. Hello. And Randy Perry. Howdy. So tonight we are discussing movies, uh, are we, a movie and a book centered around a theme of parents. Uh, we're going to try and blaze th- on through this because we're all up a little late because we were watching the live sound of music. Let's take uh, just 30 seconds each. Randy, real quick, reactions. Uh, it was no surprise at all how Carrie Underwood performed in this. Uh, the acting was wooden. The voice was still a little twangy and not confident. Um, so she unfortunately didn't surprise me at all. However, Audra's, Audra McDonald's Climb Every Mountain was as magnificent as I'd hoped it would be. And I will completely agree with all of that. Uh, I have no idea how a Southerner from Oklahoma ended up as a uh, novitiate in an uh, Austrian Abbey. Um, but, oh, my God, the bad surprise of the night. Stephen Moyer, what was that? <laughs> Goodness gracious. Yeah. Oh. Uh, but besides that, you know what? I don't think it was actually that bad. I, I, I think there were, a lot, no. there were a lot of good things in it. Uh, everybody who knew what they were doing in terms of Broadway did a good job. And I don't think it was a bad idea to do something like this. Nope. And I hope it's something that NBC might do once a year with different uh, different plays. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully with a better lead actress. Yes. And you know what? <laughs> well, Staging-wise. They, they should take a cue from Broadway and pull in someone that is a name but is more l- – l- like I'm thinking of – all those years when they got pretty good actresses, but that had a name in to do Chicago on Broadway, you know, and like they kind of had a revolving cast of people you've heard of from TV in as Billy Flynn mm-hmm. and uh, and know. Velma. Yeah, but you know what I mean, like that kind of thing. Sure. Like you know, what would be so wrong with? I mean, NBC. Do they still have an option on um, Christina Applegate? Oh, you know. what the hell was Christina Applegate's um, last thing? Oh, uh, uh, Up All Night. Yeah, I mean, or bring in Maya Rudolph. Right. You know, I mean, so somebody that maybe doesn't necessarily do Broadway or hasn't done Broadway that much and has the kind of TV name recognizability like Carrie Underwood did. Um, but I tell you, after watching this, if Audrey McDonald doesn't get a uh, a name boost from it and they aren't planning something bigger for her, NBC is a goddamn fool. <laughs> Which they are, but with... I was going to say, I think that's been established. <laughs> Every scene she was in, she basically, and it wasn't like she was, and, and here, here's where I really want to cut Audrey McDonald. I don't want to get too far on this, but I want to credit her on, she wasn't overpowering Carrie Underwood as much as she could have. Yeah. She was trying to work with her. Yeah. And which is why then Climb Every Mountain, which was her big solo, just really stood out so great. Yes. Because even there, where she's just killing the song, she's yeah. she's acting with Carrie Underwood, not just turning it into a solo piece. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're in the you're still in the room. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, station wise, by the way, the really nice job in some of that stuff. Yeah, I love the uh, the transitions. Oh yeah, the transition from, from the from Act One from the Great Hall back into the Abbey is really yeah. well done. Yeah. 
Pleasant surprise. And then from the hall into the theater towards the end of Act Two was really nice too. Yeah, with all those swastikas. <laughs> so many swastikas. As I said on Twitter, at least Nazis are more appropriate here than they were in the final few episodes of Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. One last thing I want to were say. They Illinois Nazis? <laughs> <laughs> no, Orson Bean was not involved. Wait a second, was it Orson Bean? No, uh, Henry Gibson. Thank you, the other one. All right, so we've gone completely off topic. No, we have not gone off topic because we were talking about... Uh, Sound of Music, which has Nazis, Nazis went after Jews, and now we're going to talk about the book that has to do with parents, which involves Jews, and which is 1972's My Name is Asher Lev, written by Chaim Potok. Thank you, Transition. Well Um. done. (laughs) Alrighty, guys. Now, this book is, uh, I chose it for parents because I I was specifically at the time thinking of Asher Lev, who is obviously the main character, and his parents. Um... Now, they are an Orthodox family, specifically they're Hasidic Jews in, uh, the, in Brooklyn. And uh, the date is a little indeterminate at the very beginning because the book starts with Asher as a very small child, but it feels like the last days of World War II and then goes from there. Uh, mm-hmm. well, yeah. How old is he when we first meet him? Because it does say at one point that he was born in 1943. It does. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I noticed that because that's when my dad was born. And so I'm like, hey, he's as old as my dad. I think he's probably four or five when we start, so just after so again, the war. Forty-seven, so just just post-war. He's a baby boomer. Yes, so technically the baby boomers start after World War II. Uh, so they are Hasidic Jews. Uh, they are uh, Hubavitch, I believe. Anyone? No one. Okay. What's that? Uh, they are. You said a word I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> there are various there are various uh, groups of uh, Hasidic Jews, all of them with their different different leaders. We need to go into that. Um, and they are growing up in a uh, form of Judaism that, for the most important part, oh, oh, for the oh, purposes oh, oh, of this, I learned this. It's pronounced Judaism. Okay, what did I say? I got corrected on that by an actual Jewish person, and I felt like a complete dumbass. So, Judaism, not Judaism. All right, Judaism. There we go. Thank you, random Jewish person. Uh, a form of Judaism that does not treasure visual arts. Um, and I, I, I am not going to speak for any form of Judaism and whether or not this is correct, but for the terms of the novel, this is correct. Let's just go with it. And it turns out he has a gift for this, but for the purposes of his family, it's kind of almost completely useless. It doesn't help him with, the, with his studying of the Torah, the Tanakh, or anything like that. But as I got more into re- re-reading the novel, and I've read it many times, it's interesting just how many parents there are in this novel, not just his physical parents, but there's also his rabbi, who's basically not just the spiritual leader of his community, but also kind of the overall leader of the community. Uh, there's the man who ends up teaching him how to effectively work with his gift of art. That's Jacob Kahn. There's the art dealer, whose name I'm totally blanking on right now. Anna Schaefer. Anna Schaefer. Thank you, Amy. And I think oh. it's interesting just how many parent figures there are in this novel and the various relationships that Asher has with them. So let's uh, go with Amy first. What was your take on the novel and the parents? Um, well, okay. Can I derail us slightly? Certainly. Because you um, always do. <laughs> the, the, the thing that struck me most about this, uh, about this book as I, as I read through it was, 
I've known, I mean, you know, given where I, where I grew up and, and, and such like that, I, I mean, I knew of families that were evangelical Christian and had the kind of devotion to their religion like what you have in, in this book with the, with, um, Asher's family. But that is so foreign to me in terms of like how I was raised mm-hmm. and that whole idea of if it's not glorifying God, it is against God. Um, and I also have to say that there was something about the way that the rabbi was described as being um, – at some point they described that basically there's you know, there's the person who um, – sins in his actions there's a person who sins not in his actions but in his thoughts and then there's a person who um has mastered both of those and they can only a person can only be born that way it was a word that started with tz it was like tazik or something like that zadik zadik there you go um and i get really uncomfortable with that idea and it almost starts to feel a bit – the whole thing just felt a bit cultish to me. And, I mean, even though I know that's not what's going on, mm-hmm. but just the feel of it, you know, with like, okay, we do this because the rabbi says so. The rabbi is without sin. I was like, this is – this – and so I, I, I'm going to bring this back around to parents in saying that for me – it was as much about this young man's need to reconcile himself, reconcile his talent with his parents' expectations of him as it was a book about how to break away from the family that is a cult. Mm-hmm. Y- you, know what, you know what I mean by that? Like when you, when you're, when you see somebody that's in that situation of – I guess I'm thinking like people that are so deep into Scientology, right, or any kind of cult where in some respects breaking with your your family or, or breaking with your faith means breaking with your entire life. Yes. Up until that point. And in many of these, uh, I, I do not remember specifically in this one, though I think it is mentioned um, – with with the Zadik, it's often um, inherited, which it usually a rabbi position is usually not inherited at all. Well, I mean, in this case, you know, it was, and that was another thing that bothered me. You know, was the idea. I mean, and you see that through the book. the The rabbi, you know, is from a line of these leaders, but also Asher's father. How would you say this name? Arya. Um, Asher's father is, uh, you know following in his father's footsteps and mm-hmm. right there in the very beginning of the book, you know, it talks about how you can trace the lineage of his mother's family and his father's family back this far in a way. So it almost seems like Asher is the product of two dynasties in the Jewish faith. Right. And I guess I just get really uncomfortable in general with people or, or institutions that place this much emphasis and importance on lineage. You know, I don't think it's a good way to govern a country and I'm not so good. I'm not so keen on it as a way to run a religion. 
Sure. And do you think that makes Asher, with his with his very obvious art gift, do you think that re- makes him rebel all the more? Or do you think if he hadn't had that gift, he would have been more compl- com- well compliant? How's that? I think if he hadn't had something, you know, whether it was the gift of art or, you know, a desire or a push to do something that put him at odds with his religion. I think he wanted to be obedient. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, the way people keep treating him, oh, you're the son of, you know, his dad. I think it's Arya. You know, he's in a way like little mini royalty of this particular branch of the Hasidic faith. It was his to lose, and he threw it away spectacularly, if that makes sense. Oh, yes. It, yeah, it, it does, but that was so not my reading of the book. Interesting. Tell me how you saw it. I, because the book from the beginning, and first, I will just start by saying that I absolutely loved the book. Hooray! Like, it's, it, I, like, just reading it was just such a wonderful experience like it's just so well written like i as usual i read the ebook and i've just highlighted so many passages throughout the book i just yeah absolutely loved it did you like the Um, uh, part with the cigarette ash yes yeah uh, that was a good i think anybody i think anybody wants to see how does an artist uh, work i think that's the passage i would point them to right there (laughs) (laughs) yeah because it the novel portrays Asher's gift with art as really it's subconscious in a lot of ways, like how he, it it describes him like just not really being aware of what he's doing when he's actually like drawing something and drawing on his like school books and things like that, that he's, the book is from my perspective about him trying to reconcile uh, his gift for art and his love of art with uh, what his family and the rabbi and everyone else tells him uh, he is supposed to do and how he's supposed to live his life. And the the book is about him trying to reconcile that, and that's where, where I think it goes towards the climax as well. Like, can this great important work that – and we can talk about this in another context as well – this great important work, The Brooklyn Crucifixion, what will that mean for for him with respect to both his art and his faith? Is it going to be the complete combination of it or the complete kind of destruction of being able to bring them both together? And so I, in, in a lot of ways, I found it a very suspenseful book trying to just figure out is or reading it and wondering if Asher is going to figure out a way to – to bring these two important aspects of his life together. And Amy, and, and, and I actually, Randy, I want to build off of that, if I may, because there's somewhere that I can bridge what you are talking about, what Amy is talking about, I think. And that I think centers on what the really interesting case of the rabbi in this book, the rabbi yeah. is the one who is attempting to help Asher to bridge this by bringing him to Jacob Kahn who is obviously was a member of the community at one point. I believe he says his father was a member of the community and he's a great artist, a well-regarded artist in the outside world. 
and the rabbi is trying to steer Asher into some way through Jacob Kahn to use his art that he doesn't lose Asher and Asher doesn't lose himself, and there is no break. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work in the way the rabbi would like, but it works in a way that might be the best for Asher in the end. Yeah, and I think you can also see that uh, with another couple of characters as well, like uh, uh, Yudel Krinsky, the uh, the shop owner. Yes, the one from Siberia. Yeah, like just the, the way that he kind of encouraged Ash, Asher's exploration with his artistic skills. And then, of course, also Asher's mother herself, where she would buy him paints and supplies while his father was off traveling. Like, so, so it's not like they were, like, punishing him for drawing. They were just hoping on some level that it might be a phase that he might get over and then come back fully to the faith Mm -hmm. or use his art in some way for the faith. Yeah. Which would, as it said in the book, that would be crippling his art. Yes. This is not a society that values art. So even if he tried to put his talents toward, you know, making something that this group could consume, they're not gonna. Even if Asher tried to put his talents towards uh, painting something for his community, for his, for the family of, of of this, you know, of the Jewish of the what is it, Ladrov? Ladrov. Landover. The, the, there you go. Then um, you know they're not going to appreciate it. I mean, it would be like being a really great organist who volunteers to play at a Church of Christ. You know, it's just not going to happen. They're like, yeah, great. We don't use instruments. Or at best, you know, doing ornamental art or Torahs, which is great, but not at the level of his skill, obviously. By the way, there's a uh, sequel that gets into an even worse part for Asher when he has a son and he has to decide what is he going to do there. Is the son going to become part of the community? Mm. Yeah, it's it's it's. I, I don't think the novel is quite as good, but it's a horrible choice to have to make. I liked how I did like how, um, without being obvious about it, uh, when he goes to the museum and by himself, and he kind of doesn't understand at first why people are sort of whispering around him, <laughs> and then he realizes that oh. I'm a redheaded Jewish kid wearing a skull cap with earlocks, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at a painting of the crucifixion. You know, and I, I guess I kind of liked that. It, at least in that case, we were kind of getting. I mean, even though it's not the the book isn't in first person exactly, it's or it is in first person. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're getting it from. I liked that it meant that. I mean, that was just such a subtle way to show the insular world that he had been living in in Brooklyn. There are very specific parts of the novel that I really like, like when Jacob Kahn sends him to the library and tells him to read very specific parts of Matthew, for instance, mm-hmm. the uh, the Massacre of the Innocents by Herod, mm-hmm. stuff that he would never have encountered. He has right. no concept of the crucifixion at, in his world. That's just nothing in his art vocabulary. Right. And I find that kind of fascinating. By the way, Kaim Potaka was a conservative rabbi who uh, was raised Orthodox, so I think we can trust him on, huh. on his uh, on his Jewish bona fides in writing this stuff. Well, I would almost assume. I mean, with a name, 
if you weren't well no I just meant if, if you weren't a, if you weren't a member of that community or hadn't been a part of that community you would have to do a hell mm-hmm. of a lot of research mm-hmm. to get it I mean obviously I can't vouch for its authenticity but um, you know to feel as authentic as it does um, and I kind of thought it was you know like we were saying about um, we we read a book before where we were talking about um, where I mentioned that I like just getting dropped into a world. And, I mean, this world being described in this book is so completely foreign to Mm -hmm. me. Um, I think the first time I'd ever been in a synagogue was three years ago in my life. So, well, at least for a religious service. Um, And, you know, just because East Tennessee, not a whole lot of Jewish people I'm meeting in the Appalachia. And, um, but I, and, and, and so it took me, it was kind of a slow start for me on this book because I, I started, he does just drop you right into it. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what that word is. Okay. I don't know what that term means. Okay. I got to look that up. And eventually I decided just to give it up, mm-hmm. right? That like, it generally didn't make that much difference what it was, um, you know, I don't know what that prayer means. I hope it's not significant that it's that prayer they're saying and that kind of thing. Uh, so I think it took me a little bit to kind of get into the rhythm of it and sort of figure out that I could still enjoy the book if I didn't know every little thing being talked about. Right, because a lot of it is from, I mean, it starts basically when the kid is, uh, let's call it five. And you're basically learning this world with him i mean so mm-hmm. there's some things that even for a five-year-old has been you know who's already five years old and experiencing that some things are very foreign like why is his father praying at this particular time why is his mother not praying at this particular time why is his mother uh, spending weeks upon weeks in bed all that sort of thing well that's a matter of circumstance not a matter of environment well i kind of also but there's so many things that he's doing already that are, you know, the ritual part of his life that he probably n- has never and will never remember a time when he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think what one moment like that that stood out for me was when uh, he goes to meet the um, – I'm going to say the, the whatever the, the Hebrew word is for principal um, of his school – and uh, the guy gives him a glass of water and, you know, he prays, uh, you know, he blesses, he says the blessing over the water before he drinks it. Right. And I was just like, that is something that you have to have been doing since you were, you know, since you were able to speak. And, and yeah, you know, so that ritual part of it, since it's being told from his point of view, a lot of that's not explained to us because he can just take it for granted. So. But I, I did like, yeah, and, and I mean, <clears throat> a lot of that would have been alien to me as well reading it, but I just found myself completely absorbed in it. Um, I just kind of, I, I went with it and didn't really uh, try to understand everything just because I found that because the characters understood what they were doing that for me, that was good enough. Well, like I said, after a while, I just decided 
that was the best way to go. Yeah. Um, and the only, and I, I ended up only looking up something when I thought, okay, like for example, there was one point where there was a certain prayer mentioned, a certain part of the service mentioned, and I thought, okay, is that something significant or symbolic that would that's being used that I really need to pay attention to. Sure. You know, would, would this scene have more resonance if I knew exactly what that was? But yeah, for the most part, I'm just like gloss over, gloss over. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I mean, yeah, I really liked it. And I really liked the way that he describes, I'm someone with no artistic ability whatsoever when it comes to any kind of visual art. And I loved the way that he describes and, how his eye he calls it his eyes changing and how like the world suddenly comes into a different kind of focus for him Mm -hmm. and i think that's something that people who have that uh, a really strong pull towards the creative arts must feel you know like somebody that can create music they hear the world differently or you know, dancers feel their body differently, you know, that, that kind of thing. Since I don't have any of those kinds of talents, I I can only read about it with a certain amount of, of wonder. Yeah. There's a scene in the book that I actually really like that highlights that I think where he and his mother go to, I don't believe it's a MoMA because I'm, I'm honestly not sure MoMA existed at that point. Uh, but whatever the, uh, the major, a traditional art museum is in New York City. And his mother is, frankly, for for most of it, kind of embarrassed to be there because there's a lot of Christian art, there are nudes, there are statues of people completely out of her, out of her religion and her society. Meanwhile, her son is absorbing everything he can while he's there and understanding, even with his limited understanding of art theory at that point, he's getting it, she's not. Yeah, and he's moving. Be and that, that that may be, I think, one of the first for him crystallizations of I think what's an important, a very important theme of this novel overall. Moving beyond your parents, he yeah. he moves beyond basically every parent he has in this in this novel. It's implied that he's become a better, a greater artist than Jacob Kahn, or he will be at some point. He, mm-hmm. he, he's moved beyond his parents and their understanding of what. Makes him tick. The rabbi? Who knows? The rabbi still seems... And and, and actually, I would like to just note one thing about this novel that I love. The rabbi never comes across as a monster. (laughs) No. He's not a monstrous religious leader. He is trying his damnedest to work with uh, Asher within the strictures of his his religion and his understanding. And that is one thing that kind of redeemed the whole setup for me. Um, even though, you know, I was getting at first kind of a lot of weird, you know, I don't like it when, uh, I mean, I guess I, I kept feeling like they're treating this guy like he's the Jewish Pope, mm-hmm. you know, he's infallible. His word is near to God's and, and that kind of thing. And I'm like, you know, sorry, Catholics, that's something that kind of makes me a little nervous <laughs> about Catholicism. <laughs> And so I, I didn't like seeing the Jews, uh, you know, doing it either. But then you actually meet the guy and you realize that, okay, you know, for the fact that he was partially chosen into this by his lineage, 
by birth and then partially because the community has given him you know has elevated him to this position of, of trust and respect and, and and leadership at least it's a good guy doing it <laughs> well before we move on to the movie actually you guys might uh since you brought that up amy uh, you might want to at some point read uh, Potox, The Chosen, and one of the two main characters in there is the son of a Zadik. And it's really interesting seeing a guy being raised to be a Zadik and just what that might feel like for a, uh, it, I think he starts when he's like 15 and around 1943. Well, I mean, I wonder if it's anything like, um, I haven't personally read or, or seen any of the, uh, the the stories about the the children who are supposed to be the reincarnation of Buddha. Mm-hmm. You know, I imagine it's. You mean the uh, like you mean the of the Dalai like Lama of the of the Dalai. Sorry, sorry. Yes, yes. of the Dalai. You know, I imagine it's got to be something like that, right? Like. Yeah. Hi, you're four years old. We found you. You're the reincarnation of the uh, of the Dalai. Right. Yay. That's a lot to put on a little kid. Right. It's like. He's like I just want to stick a bean up my nose. You guys ever seen the movie Dogma? Yeah. Yes. The Alan Rickman speech about having to tell Jesus that he was the son of God, that's a heartbreaking scene. What do you say to it? I think he told him when he, was, uh, when he was 12 years old. What do you say to a 12-year-old that you're the son of God and your destiny is to die for everyone's sins? Okay, we're going to move uh, from My Name is Asher Lev now to the movie section of the podcast. And Amy, why don't you tell us about the movie? Okay, so the movie we watched is The Family Stone, which came out in 2005 and is quite an ensemble cast featuring, among others, uh, Diane Keaton, Sarah Jessica Parker, Craig T. Nelson, Dermot Mulroney, uh, Luke or Owen? Luke Luke. Wilson, uh, Rachel McAdams, Elizabeth Reeser, Claire Danes. I think that hits all the high names, right? Paul Schneider. Yeah, I don't know that he's in that same league. I don't know who um, Elizabeth Reeser is either, but... <laughs> oh, well, she's a personal favorite of mine, so there. Okay. Um, and the setup is Dermot Mulroney is playing Everett, who I couldn't tell if he was supposed to be the oldest son or... He's either the oldest or the, the second. Youngest son. Yeah. It's so... either him or Luke is the oldest. Oh, I thought Elizabeth Reeser might be the oldest. Of, anyway, of, the, so... of the boys, I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The the youngest son is the the deaf son is definitely the youngest yeah. one. The deaf gay son. You know, it's like I I, I kept thinking of something from Heather's. I'm like, I love my deaf. That's gay exactly son. what chick this came into my head. <laughs> I love my deaf gay son. Anyway, <sighs> sorry to all of our hearing impaired and gay listeners. Sorry, <sighs> our hearing impaired listeners. <laughs> 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 well, maybe somebody can write down for them how I insulted them. All right. So, um, God, that's terrible. I'm going straight down for that. All right. So, uh, anyway, the, the basic premise is that Everett, who's Dermot Moroni, is bringing home a woman named Meredith to meet his family. And I think the youngest sister, um, Amy, played by Rachel McAdams, has already met Meredith, but I don't think the rest of the family has met her. Uh, that Correct. was my, That's my impression. impression. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's Christmas. Um, he's brought her home for Christmas. And part of the reason he's brought her home is that he's going to propose to her, and he wants to use his grandmother's wedding ring to do so. His mother had told him uh, years before that he could use that ring to – he could give that ring to the woman he was going to marry. And the family's last name is Stone, and you have the ring, so that's how you get to the family stone. Let's come to think of it, um, it may mean that he really is the oldest son. Well, if, yeah. If he's good. the one promised the ring. Yeah, but then again, Luke's kind of a, I don't know, you don't give Luke precious jewelry. <laughs> well, fair enough, yeah. So, that's the basic premise, and I, I want to talk about the film a little bit. Um, okay. In Did you not like it, Joe? You can start. We'll get into my problems with it. Well, I have problems with it, too. Um, uh, Randy, did you hate it? Well, I had seen it before. And okay. it's, it is one of those movies that, in a way like The Sound of Music, I feel guilty for enjoying as much as I do. <laughs> well, okay. Like, every critical bone and nerve in my body tells me that I really shouldn't like it. I don't but... think so. And I'll, here's, where, here's where I'm going to make the argument is – I feel like this movie had a lot of ingredients that could have made it a really good movie and things just went wrong. Um, I, I, I think it was a, definitely a movie with an identity crisis where you know, if you have a scale of bringing home someone to be introduced to the family movies that has meet the parents on one end and Rachel getting married on the other end – this movie bounced wildly back and forth on that spectrum and could not ultimately decide where it wanted to be. And, you know, tonally it was shifting in ways that made it very difficult. Um, because I think some of the characters were really interesting. Like Sybil, Diane Keaton's character, the matriarch of the family, she's just an out and out bitch. Yes. Yeah, she is. But she's also incredibly warm and nurturing towards her own children in a lot of ways. And <laughs> so there's an interesting combination there. I mean, like, especially I think when you're using an actress like Diane Keaton, who could so very very easily play the frosty wasp bitch mother, right? Um, to have her be sort of lewd and crude... And lewd, crude, and rude in certain parts. It was interesting. I thought that was an interesting, what interesting character and an interesting way to play it by Diane Keaton. But then I felt like the movie didn't quite know what to do with that. Um, I also found Sarah Jessica Parker's Meredith incredibly interesting because she's very she's playing a very uptight person in this, and I felt like it was a really good job by Sarah Jessica Parker. In this role, and if I, I may, yes, Sarah Jessica Parker is the best part of this movie. Something that you almost never hear me say. <laughs> I honestly loved her character. She could have been just an uptight, stick up her butt, Manhattan socialite parody, but no, she's trying her damnedest to fit in with this family. Well, Even when she's messing up, and I see this in the outline, we'll get to that in a second. Even when she's messing up, she is doing it with the best of damn intentions. 
Well, and I thought it was interesting how, for me at least, she swung from wildly sympathetic to unsympathetic and back again. And I, I put on it as a question for you guys. Do you think that was a complex character, or do you think that was inconsistent writing? I'm trying to think of when she would be considered unsympathetic. At the dinner conversation. I was sympathizing the living hell out of her in that conversation. She was saying some incredibly stupid things. Well, that's what I mean is, you know, the things she's saying could really turn you against her as a character. So let's get to that scene. And I think, Randy, it falls to you. (laughs) Speak for your people. So the – what's the best way to put this? The family stone themselves live in a town that I assume has the name of like rich liberal Waspington or something because <laughs> it's it's almost like hilarious. One, how big the house is, two, how big the rooms in the house are, mm-hmm. and right. three, just how in a way broadly caricatured some of the aspects of the characters are. Like, when we first see Rachel McAdams, who's a bit of a fuck-up, she's driving a beat-up old station wagon and carrying an NPR bag, for God's sake. Like, it's a Volvo station <laughs> <laughs> Her, mo- her mostly Mozart as... tote bag. <laughs> and, and you also mentioned Thad, the youngest son, who is, one, deaf, two, gay, three, with a black boyfriend, four, trying to adopt a baby. Like, that's practically a liberal bingo card right there. Does architect, does architect count as a five in that? <laughs> like, there was, there's, there's a lot to take with, with the, uh, the upper middle class privilege going on in this family. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, and I'm sorry, I'm going <laughs> to pop in here to say it's a very curious type of thing for me when, like, I think that's, that's where I'm making the comparison to Rachel getting married. When you have sort of hippy dippy kind of gushy new agey stuff happening mm-hmm. in a very waspy part of the country in a very nice house and with a lot of money floating around. Yeah. All right, guys. And, instinct. Why does Rachel getting married manage to pull that off? This movie doesn't quite pull it off. Well, that's a, there's other thoughts on that. So, but let's uh, get back yeah. to the scene. Okay. So, so the scene in question, uh, Meredith's first impression with the family has not gone very well at all. And she recruits her younger sister, the name of the character, Julie, uh, who is played by Claire Danes, to kind of come and provide backup. And so Julie and Meredith and the entire family stone are sitting around the, the dinner table and they're just talking. And uh, Julie was talking about – Thad and his boyfriend adopting the baby, and if was was it in that in the context of if they wanted a black or white baby, or if it mattered or something? And I think that's the context. Very, that, yeah. was, that was the first question she asked. Yes, yeah. yes, but and they they were very receptive in this particular discussion to actually dealing with this potentially controversial topic. And so then Meredith, seeing Julie fit in much more easily with the family than she did. Uh, kind of dips her toe in this water as well, and it doesn't go very well, where she then talks about uh, nature versus nurture and how she can't imagine anyone wanting their children to be gay that 
that because it's such a burden and she would just think that parents would all want their children to be quote unquote normal. And she just keeps digging herself in deeper and deeper. And it gets so bad that at one point Craig T. Nelson as the patriarch of the family actually like literally slams his fist on the table. And well, and he does that. So first he says, that's enough. And he says it in a very calm, yeah. quiet way. Then she keeps going and he says, that's enough again in a very calm, quiet way. And then when she starts again, he interrupts her and fist table. I mean, so, you know, he gave, this was a third, you know, he mm-hmm. gave her two warnings. Yeah. Yeah. And back to the whole point of, excuse me, our sympathies, or is Meredith a sympathetic character throughout this conversation? It's, she's trying very inelegantly to have, you know, a real conversation. And she doesn't, she does not use anywhere close to the right words to try to get her point across. And I I do remain sympathetic with her and the point that she's, the conversation that she's trying to have without fully realizing what she's actually saying by this, by the use of the words that she's actually using. Um, I, I wouldn't say she became unsympathetic to me, but it was definitely, uh, it was a fascinating scene because it. Well, it Sarah depends. I think, I think it depends on how you read what the character is saying. Yeah. And if you read it, I think like it seems like we all have, which is that, you know, she's trying to say in, in a certain way, okay, you grew up with certain challenges, being deaf, being gay, and, you know, would you rather have a child that didn't have to face those specific challenges? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what she's trying to say. But there's really no good way to say that. <laughs> no. And there's certainly no good way to say that to people you have just met. Thank you. At the dinner table. Yes. But at the same time, I don't think she believes it. Like, I don't think she's saying that being gay is like I don't think she's saying being gay is wrong or no, that you're a freak of nature. No. I don't think she's doing no. – I, I mean my personal read on it is that – but given the way the words are coming out of her mouth and given the way the family is treating her, hmm. you think that's what they – that's how they're interpreting it is you, you, you bigoted little horrible person. Mm-hmm. As they and, see it from their ridiculously privileged – Perch. <laughs> right. Well, and I, I, I feel like, and I, I said this in our notes about the show, is that she strikes me as a smart person who wants to be seen as an intelligent one. And, you know, there's a difference in that. There are a lot of people out there that are very smart, but they're not necessarily intelligent mm-hmm. in that sort of cerebral, intellectual kind of way. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's clearly what this family is all about. You know what this right? movie is missing? A little bit of background on Meredith. We don't know. Well, we don't know much about her besides that she's from Manhattan and she's a businesswoman and that she's dating Dermot Mulroney uh, Everett. And, and she makes they, the strata for every Christmas family breakfast. Yes. Well, and for you know comedic effect, we get this very long, drawn out how they met story where the rest of the family is clearly bored to tears by it. Yeah, I don't remember but how the, the story goes time, because I was bored to tears by it. But at the same time, it's like she is alive and lit up 
when she is telling that story. Yeah. I mean, you can tell from her face that she's really excited about telling the story of how she met Everett. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and, here- and the family is just not indulging that aspect of it at all. And look how alive she gets when the family, one member of the family indulges her when she ends up going out to a bar with Luke Wilson's character, Ben. Look how damn alive Meredith is in that scene. Well, and that's for me, you know, and that comes after the dinner conversation, obviously. And that's when I'm kind of like, okay, I'm thawing on her again because, you know, she is. And I guess I just also I feel for her because she is trying so hard. I mean, and like at the very beginning of the, I mean, like from the, what is it? I wrote down like the first thing, um, one of the first things that, uh, oh yeah, they, she's been there like in the house five minutes and she says to Diane Keaton, you have a lovely home. And Diane Keaton's immediate response is the better to entertain you. Yeah. And I'm just like. Okay, so you're all about the NPR and the Volvo, and I'm sure you give to, like, every liberal cause ever, but you can't be nice to the person that has come into your home? Yeah. Yeah, there was a weird amount of hostility from that family towards her. Well, given the uh, the sort of plot of the rest of the movie in which, as Dermot Mulroney asks Diane Keaton for the ring to propose to Meredith with, and I realize I'm switching between actor and character names here – Basically, uh, Sybil, Diane Keaton's whole point is she's not the right woman for you. And this, I mean, the, the, the first scene when Meredith does show up there, I think that's how we're expected to read what Sybil does, that she like figures it out right away that, that Everett and Meredith are not a good match, but, which the movie then proceeds to tell us that she was right. But the movie tells us that. But there's still no reason for her to be that rude. Right. Yeah. That was, yeah. I mean, and especially on first meeting this <laughs> yeah. woman. I mean, I think for the sake of your son, you want to present to this outsider a better picture of his mother, of your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe that's totally, what is the word, bourgeoisie of me. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'm just not rich and liberal enough to understand it. But, you know, my family, (laughs) you try to make a good impression on whoever your kid brings home. Well, it's it's that that classic uh, Blanche Devereaux line from the Golden Girls when when she's like, if if I'm uncomfortable, our guests will be ill at ease. That would be unsouthern. <laughs> Blanche is the best. But I mean, I don't think that's just southern. I mean, <laughs> it's just good hosting. Like, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And then I, I she think... makes them Strata. Who rejects Strata for crying out loud? <laughs> Strata's the well, Strata's awesome. And I think the but I think the problem with this movie overall, like I said, I feel like there's some very interesting ingredients and ideas. Yes. But some, I feel like someone somewhere, either the studio gave them too many notes. Oh, this movie stinks or... the studio notes. <laughs> because, and especially with the, um, one of the things I hated immediately about this movie was the score, <sighs> which is odd because I really, it's what Michael, how do you say it? Michael, Giacchino? Giacchino. Giacchino. Yeah. Whose scores I've liked for a lot yeah. of other movies, and I liked I liked him on Alias, and yeah. you know I think he's a very interesting and talented composer. But they have him doing this like 
wacky, whimsical mm-hmm. kind of stuff in a lot of the scenes. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is not, you know, this is, excuse me, this is not appropriate. This movie can't, dis- and there was a distinct pattern. It happened at least twice. There was a very, I'm trying to remember what the scene was that came before the strata splatter. Uh, that is her giving the uh, the photograph to the family. No, that was later. Was no. it? Is that, is that, isn't that, that's, is that after the strata? Let me think here. There was, there was something, I'm trying to remember now what it was, but there was, so you have a really bad scene, and then you have a wacky, you have the wacky slapstick people slipping on food scene. It was the, the scene right before it was when, she thought she had slept with the brother. Okay. And so that and then, came out. But so earlier in the movie you had, um, after she had the conversation, the dinner conversation, she decides she's going to leave and go check in at the inn. or no, that was earlier. Yeah. And she, and she can't drive the car in the snow yeah. and they're all pointing and laughing and you know, she's got the car stuck and it was, yeah, that was and, after and, the dinner table. Scene. And it's like, in both of those cases, you had a very serious scene that had no score behind it. You know, the, the very dramatic, serious scene that was played out without music. And then cut to slapstick and, you know, clarinet of wacky coming in. <laughs> clarinet of wacky. <laughs> and it made me so angry because I was just like, that's what I mean about this movie, not knowing where it wants to be on that meet the parents, Rachel getting married scale. Mm-hmm. And there was even a tiny part of me when the movie very first started and, you know, the 20th Century Fox logo comes up. Because I've seen this movie before and I thought – when I saw that, I thought, I wonder how much better this movie might have been if it had been allowed to come out on the Fox Searchlight banner. And the reason I say that is because I think someone at 20th Century Fox thought, okay – because this came out obviously well after Meet the Parents and may have even come out after – what was that one with Jane Fonda and J-Lo? Mother-in-law? Yes. Monster-in-law? Monster-in-law. Okay. I think it was before yeah. then. It was a... But it's kind of Monster right around... Monster-in-law is like in, late 2000s, I think. It was definitely after Meet the Parents. And yeah. so somebody at 20th Century Fox is like, okay, we're going to green light this and get some of that Meet the Parents money. We're going to hit that zeitgeist. And then they realized, oh, but wait, it's a serious drama with prickly people. Oh, but wait, we can throw a giant big name ensemble cast at it and you know make the people laugh Mm -hmm. and i like you said there's a lot of studio notes all over it and i'm like i think suddenly big names got attached it was a christmas release there were high hopes for it and that's probably where the original intent got squashed like a bug uh monster law actually came out the may of the same year yeah so it came out first then yeah so close enough that you know doesn't matter that much. It would have, well, it would have been in development. And yeah. So I wanted to – I told you guys as an extra assignment to go check out the trailer. Did either of you do that? Uh, yes. yes. So, Joe, tell us about the trailer. The trailer is a goddamn mess. Yeah. <laughs> what more do you want from me on talking about that trailer? That, uh, it, it all, what kind of movie do you think you're going to see based on that trailer? Oh, I'm totally seeing a slapstick uh, – uh, a slapstick uh, trying to build on uh, 
uh, what's her name? Sarah Jessica Parker uh, was in uh, Sex in the City movie. Randy, was that your impression? That they were, it's not like they were misleading about what was in the movie. It's just that they were excluding a lot of stuff that was in the movie to just highlight the wackiness of the family and stuff like that. It almost feels like, you know how you've seen those things in the last few years where they'll take like a horror movie and recut it so that it looks like a rom-com trailer or vice versa? I was expecting like a record a, scratch at one point. Like they'll yeah. take, yes. They'll take a rom-com movie and recut it to be like a horror film. That's almost what this trailer feels like is yeah. that, okay, you took scenes that were actually in the movie mm-hmm. to make a trailer for something that's not the movie at all. <laughs> And uh, to, so to give you the personal story, my friend Shannon and I, uh, she'd come down to visit me here in Athens. This was a couple of years after I'd moved here. And we, you know, kind of hang out. Hey, let's go see a chick flick together because we never get to do that anymore now that we don't live in the same city. And, okay, hey, this is on. We like those people. It looks funny. You know, maybe a little too slapsticky for our taste, but we'll just bear through that. And so we go, we watch it. And, you know, there are parts of this movie that are incredibly uncomfortable Oh yeah, with how bitchy the family is and how awkward Meredith is and, you know, lots of things going on like that. And then I feel like we need to just spoiler alert here, mention a storyline we haven't yet, which is <laughs> that um, Sybil, uh, who I think was a breast cancer survivor, has had it come back. And that is not at all in the trailer at all. And Shannon and I, once we realized that's what's going on, and then at the end of the movie, oh, my God. We we came out of that movie just kind of shell-shocked looking at each other with tear-stained faces. And we're like, that wasn't what we thought it was going to be. <laughs> and, you know, it was uh, a bit jarring. And I have to think – why don't marketing people understand that? Uh, marketing people are marketing the movie they want it to be, not the movie that it is. But that's going to kill word of mouth because the people that... It's all about the opening weekend. They don't care well, about the but... word of mouth. They care about how much it makes on the opening weekend. But, I mean, nowadays you've got word of mouth that Friday night will keep people out of the movie theaters on Saturday night. Yeah, but they want that Friday night. Well, but you need the whole weekend. You would think. I mean, you really do. Yeah. And... You know, I mean, it's just like Adventureland suffered from the same problem. Mm-hmm. A wonderful movie that I love a lot. The trailer was marketed towards teenagers. The movie itself was going to be much more interesting to people my age. That's a surprisingly dark movie. Yeah, and so the the teenagers that go to see it thinking it's going to be another super bad are disappointed, and the adults who would probably actually enjoy it are never showing up because they think it's super bad. Yeah, and that's a movie I actually point to people to when they when they say Kristen Stewart can't act. I'm like, oh no, see Adventureland. She's actually yeah. quite good in that. So I, I feel like you know there was that problem too when you have so you have the very uncomfortable, awkward. People meeting the parents, you know, uh, prospective fiance not meshing with the family drama. You have this slapstick comedy, and then you also end up having this melodrama with the dying mom. And so I want to ask you, did you feel like that storyline, from the way it was introduced, kind of, because it, 
it was introduced very i felt like subtly and slowly mm-hmm. yes and i liked that i thought that was a good so i think again like you say there's studio notes all over this movie i think the movie was originally supposed to be about i think it was really supposed to be dark and I think the slapstick stuff got added later. I have criticisms that of this. Was a rewrite. I have criticisms of this movie when it comes to the tone and the studio notes, but I would I actually have to give it credit for how it still sticks into how cleanly and subtly it puts in the cancer part, because it's still there and it's handled. In a more subtly way than you would think for a movie that has this much slapstick. Because there's yeah. a lot of side glances. There's a lot of, we don't want to especially talk about this in front of the new people. But Well, and I definitely got the impression that she hadn't told Tad. Yes. The deaf gay yeah. son. Right. There, there were, At first, the only one that had figured it out was Elizabeth Reeser. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then I believe uh, uh, Dermot Moroni's character figures it out next, probably. Luke Wilson. Well, no, Luke Wilson, because he and his dad are out at the... Oh, right, right. That scene oh, is first. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and he tells him that. And then and then Dermot Mulroney figures it out. Craig T. Nielsen, guys, um, let's just talk about Craig T. Nielsen for a second. He's good in this. Well, and I told you, this is 100% how he gets cast in Parenthood. Because even though the character is very different from Zeke Braverman, mm-hmm. the idea of him being the patriarch of wealthy, liberal family... Same thing in both. Yeah, I, I liked uh, him a lot in this. I, I have other problems with the movie. Him, not a bit. No, he's very good in this. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, I didn't have any complaints with the cast in terms of acting. No, I mean, some some yeah. are better than others. Uh, Claire Danes was, I, I actually thought, kind of surprisingly good. I didn't think surprisingly. I didn't think they gave her much to do, honestly. Well, with, with what she had, I thought she did quite well. Yeah. It was nice to see her play someone who doesn't drive me nuts. <laughs> she had really nice hair in this. I, 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 I know that sounds kind of shallow, but... Every... You just want to pet the pretty hair. She had really, really nice hair. It was shiny. Better than her Temple Grandin hair? I've never seen Temple Grandin. Uh, um, if her hair looked like Temple Grandin's actually does, then yes. So, to get back to Sybil's storyline, there was one scene in that storyline that was just phenomenal where um, one of the ways you can kind of pick up that something is wrong with Sybil is that she's taking a lot of naps Mm -hmm. and for being such a dynamo as she is, she doesn't seem like somebody that wants to take a lot of naps. So that's your kind of first clue that something's going on. I think I know what scene you're headed towards here. The one with Craig T. Nelson. Actually, no, I'm sorry. I, I was going for the other one. No, I'm going with the one with Craig T. Nelson. Okay, I was going for because, the Elizabeth Reeser uh, scene, which I think is very nice. Yeah, but then Craig T. Nelson scene later on, um, it's a romantic scene. Yeah. You know, not a sex scene, but a romantic scene between two people who have been together for a long time, have this family together, and still real are very devoted and clearly love one another. And he unbuttons her shirt, and you see the mastectomy scar. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I don't know that I've seen that in another movie where it wasn't like a big drum roll moment, reveal the scar, take a moment to appreciate it. Yeah. 
dramatic moment that it was just sort of a ma- I mean there was a moment where they kind of paused the characters did and she sort of flinched a little bit and he kind of acknowledged the flinch and kept on with his affection and the scar wasn't the centerpiece of it it wasn't a shot of the right. scar it, the scar I mean, just happened to be ignore- in the shot they didn't ignore it completely she flinches and he kind of reassures her but i just thought what a wonderful little moment Mm -hmm. my issue with that scene is the fact that it's cross-cut with elizabeth reaser watching meet me in st louis um and so on the soundtrack you actually hear uh judy garland's performance of uh have yourself a merry little christmas well there's christmas music all through the movie no 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 it's yeah but my issue is that that is such an iconic film moment and such an iconic performance and such an iconic song that I think it does a lot of the heavy lifting in the scene. And mm-hmm. I think it, it does the heavy lifting and detracts from really the, the intimate affection that we get in uh, the Diane Keaton, uh, Craig T. Nelson scenes. I actually, it didn't bother me that much. In fact, I actually thought, boy, that song is really complimenting this well. Um, but And I kind of liked that they were cross-cutting, because otherwise, I think it would have felt a little gauche to just add it onto the scene. But when it's, when you're giving it a reason to sort of be in the scene, because the daughter's watching it, eh, I mean, it just didn't bother me that much. Mm-hmm. I really liked the. Uh, it didn't detract enough from the scene hmm. for me to not like the scene. And watching the movie a second time, knowing that uh, Sybil's cancer is back. Well, well, since we didn't really know she had cancer in the first place, knowing that she she her cancer is back and that she is very likely dying, which spoiler she does uh, in the movie. Um, it really colors every scene that she's in. Um, I think the first time we see her, she's just kind of standing at the sink, staring at the window mm-hmm. and just kind of, it looks like she's flipped a switch off and she's just not really moving and just kind of quiet and reflective and not really doing anything. And then Thad and his boyfriend show up and it's like, she's back on and you just kind of get the whole sense of her, kind of processing this as quite possibly her last Christmas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Which is, it's, it's really too bad that it makes you feel that way because in a lot of ways, she's such an unrepentant bitch. Throughout the- <laughs> like, really. Yeah, it's okay. I didn't forgive her anything. I'm like, no. because you have cancer doesn't mean you get to be an asshole. <laughs> exactly. Uh. Like, these kids are going to be so much better off without their mother around ruining their lives. Uh. All right. I think we pretty much chewed over that movie as much as we need to. Well, I'll- I do want to. I do want to bring up one last thing, which is the epilogue. Yeah. Um, we see Christmas the next year, and that's how I we thought it was two years later. I thought it was a year two later. Years? I assumed. Well, anyway, so we see. I, I assumed it was just one year later because you see, know nobody's aged that much, especially uh, see, Elizabeth Reeser's daughter. Uh, we see that Sybil's not there, and um, you know, and we can tell from the way boxes are that are in the house that okay dad's either brought down stuff from the attic to decorate for christmas and hasn't pulled it out or he's packing up the house to move or or something like that 
and but the family is showing up and you know the deaf gay son has a very cute little baby um who i think or at least my impression was mixed race because <laughs> of course um but the thing i did not buy about that epilogue I could buy that Everett and Julie would still be together. Yes. I cannot buy that Ben and Meredith would be together. Interesting. I I don't think the movie, yeah, gave us enough evidence to suggest that they kind of balance each other out, that they could balance each other out in a long, long long-term relationship like this. Yeah. It's, uh, I would agree with you on that. Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, and then also the fact that Amy would still be together with the guy that popped her cherry. I kind of liked just, him, I, though. Yeah. Well, I liked him, too, but she seems like she wouldn't get that. You know, well, he's I think, way too... Yeah. He was her bit of rough. Her <laughs> bit of rough? Well, in sort of her genteel way. I mean, she's not actually going to go for anything too scary. He's a constable in her super super white upper class wasp town. Is that what? Yeah, is that what she? Wears could, a, is that what he wears a uniform? That is rough. Oh, uh, Lord! I also love the moment in the epilogue where they're all gathering in the living room to turn on the lights on the tree, and they turn on the lights. And it's this shitty ass looking thing with a mess of lights everywhere. <laughs> I, you know, you know what, Clearly Randy? Dad Randy, has done the you laugh at that, but Amy's exactly right. The dad did the decorating. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, dad did this. It's great. <laughs> By the way, uh, I would. So I, I wish I could overall, find a, the original of that Diane Keaton photo. That, it, that apparently is a photo of Diane Keaton, mm. Uh, mm. but it's altered because she uh, Diane Keaton's never been pregnant. But I would love to find the original because uh, that's kind of a lovely photo. It was a be- that was my favorite scene in the movie. Oh, the, the, the scene yeah. where she's handing out the photos—that's really nice. Yeah, and you feel like that's sort of when the family should soften toward her, and yet they still don't. And then they go into the incredibly well, badly designed kitchen and knock her across the floor with a strata that she's getting out of the refrigerator. So yeah, <sighs> I hate I hate that uh, so- I hate that scene because. If you're standing at the refrigerator, the kitchen door should not bang you right in the ass in your beautifully designed house. Overall, would you recommend this movie to someone? If it was on cable, go ahead and watch it. Randy? That's that's a good assessment, yeah. And I have, like, a few times. (laughs) Well, no, I I would tell someone to seek it out. You know, like, don't go to any great trouble, but, like, you know, if you're in the video store and you're, it's around Christmas, because I, I think it would and feel And if you're back in 2005 and you have a video store. <laughs> Got one right down the road. Don't even start with me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I like it because of the performances and the characters. It has definite flaws. It has something to say, and I'm willing to give it full credit for that. And so it's not as so much – it's really more just about the mother than about parents in general. Yes. Um, but I hope it fits the theme okay. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It, it's not a bad movie. I just think it has tonal shifts that go all over the place that I just can't recommend it fully with that. 
And there are a couple of people in there that I think are just awful. All right. All righty. So, that's it. <laughs> <sighs> wow, we blazed through things, hopefully, pretty fast this time around. Uh, Not at all, but uh, hopefully you can make some magic. <laughs> work some magic. We could talk some more about the sound of music. Not. No. Do you want me to set up the next one? <laughs> yes, Amy. Uh, we are doing something special for next time around. Amy has got the theme, the book, and the movie. Amy, what's our theme? Because I'm special like that. Don't you love me? Um, I'm feeling really good about myself right now. All right. Strutting so, down the street. <laughs> yeah. I should underlay uh, what the hell is the song from Staying Alive? The Strutting Down the Staying Street. Staying Alive? Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank God we have Randopedia. Oh, Jesus All right. Christ. All right, Amy, what's the, so, what's the theme? This theme came about because. There's a book I'm really interested in reading, and I didn't want to have to wait until one of you picked a theme that I could recommend it for. Fair enough. Um, so that's how this came about when I asked if we could do – if I could pick all three. Um, and I don't really think we need to, to say the theme once I tell you what the, the book and the movie are. You'll figure it out. All righty. Let's go with the um, book first then since that seems we'll to start be – start with the book, which is um, David Levithan's Two Boys Kissing. Two Boys Kissing. Uh, it just came out this year. And a couple – I was lucky enough a few weeks back to go to a joint reading uh, with him and R Rainbow Rowell and Roll. I still can't remember. I've seen her in person, have met her, and I still can't remember how to pronounce her name. And David Levithan. Um, she's the author of Eleanor and Park and Fangirl, and he's written many, many books. Um, one of his first books that uh, that kind of came out that was really big was um, Boy Meets Boy, and that came out ten years ago. <coughs> um, but he's very interested. He plays around a lot with um, form and also with co-authoring. Uh, if you if you haven't. If you know, um, uh, da, 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 da. what's the one he wrote? I don't know this guy at all. Sorry. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. He wrote, he co-wrote. Crawling, um, Teacher's Funeral. No, 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 no. Hold on. He co-wrote with Rachel Cohn, Naomi and Eli's No Kiss List. But their first one was Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Still haven't seen the movie. So he co-wrote that. Um, he also co-wrote a book wherein he gave uh, – he worked with a photographer, and the photographer would send him a picture, and he would write a chapter based on that photo. But he never showed his – he didn't show his chapters to the photographer. Um, and the photographer would just send him the next picture, and he would have to – go with his next chapter based on that. And so, and then it was published with the photos. Uh, he also co-wrote with, um, he co-wrote with John Green, uh, Will Grayson, Will Grayson, about two guys named Will Grayson who meet each other. And John Green wrote the chapters from one Will Grayson and David Levithan wrote the chapters from the other one. I remember he that book for the really good cover. Which is a weird yeah. way to remember it, but it's got a great semi-psychedelic cover. 
Um, he also wrote, um, a, again, being experimental with form, something called The Lover's Dictionary, which I really like, uh, which is a love story told in the form of dictionary entries. Um, so this is a guy who likes to experiment um, with his form. And Two Boys Kissing is based on a an actual event that happened where two guys, uh, two teenagers in, I think it's New Jersey, um, decided they were going to set a new world record for longest kiss. And I mean, that's a real, that, that that's a real story, that part. Okay. But it gets, it gets used as a basis, um, to tell the stories of other people who hear about this stunt. And the whole thing is narrated by a Greek chorus of the generation of gay men that were lost to AIDS or the generation that lost a lot of its members to the AIDS crisis. Um, and when Levithan was talking about this book, uh, he calls that, he calls uh, people his age and he's in his, um, let's see, he was born in 1972. So he's kind of right, right in the middle of all of, of, of us three. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, the, the hinge generation, you know, young enough to have not been an adult really when the AIDS crisis was at its height, mm. um, but old enough to remember when, you know, there was, gay marriage was a pipe dream. Right. When the idea of two boys kissing wouldn't result in immediate lynching or would have resulted in immediate lynching, you know, that kind of thing. And so this, this kind of generation that doesn't know the freedom that the kind of teenagers now do, these 17-year-old boys who are trying to break a world record, <laughs> but also not the, the, the terror that the previous generation knew because of a disease. Um, and so I, I think this is really interesting, this idea of a Greek chorus. And he and Rainbow read... Uh, uh, some parts from the book and uh, uh, no I'm sorry he read and by the, they, they read a little bit together and then he read some separately and she was crying in front of us even though she's read it before she's done the reading with him a million times every time she tears up because his words are that powerful mm. so um, I think that I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading this book because of its Experimental form, and because Levithan's writing I really enjoy. So as a companion film, I've decided to choose the documentary that was nominated for an Oscar called We Were Here, uh, which is um, a documentary about San Francisco. It was orig- it was an independent lens documentary, and it was or eventually shown on independent lens. And... Um, Here's the description of it. When, when AIDS arrived in San Francisco in 1981, it decimated a community, but also brought people. Um, sorry, I've lost my place. Uh, but also brought people closer together. And we were here 
focuses on the individuals, all of whom lived in San Francisco prior to the epidemic. Their lives changed in unimaginable ways when their beloved city changed from a hotbed of sexual freedom and social experimentation into the epicenter of a terrible and largely mysterious plague. From their different advantage points as caregivers, activists, researchers, friends, and lovers of the afflicted, and as people with AIDS themselves, the interviewees share stories that are not only intensely personal, but that also illuminate the much larger themes of that era. And so I feel like if Two Boys Kissing is narrated by the men lost to the crisis, We Were Here is survivors of that crisis telling the same story. You know, I thank you because I've had that on my Netflix list since it became available and watch instant. And I had just not, frankly, had the damn courage to watch We Were Here. Well, because I know I'm going to be honestly sobbing like a goddamn baby and swearing at people while watching (laughs) that. Well, so I think those two things, I think those two will fit very nicely together. And, uh, uh, you know, it kind of feels weird to say, my theme is AIDS. Um, (laughs) Yeah, my theme is cancer. (laughs) And I've got that dream where your teeth are all rotting, you know, whatever. Anyway. um, They're falling out. Oh, mine always crumble and I'm chewing on them. Anyway, so... um, we will discuss that, I guess, in, well, now two weeks. Two weeks, uh, December 19th. Okay, so two weeks on December 19th. We'll discuss that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, any final thoughts, guys? We're obviously all remaking, recommending Asher Love, and I'm really happy about that. I love that you guys uh, liked the novel. Uh, <laughs> Amy is probably recommending uh, Family Stone a little bit more than uh, Randy and I, who are saying if it's on cable and it's Christmas season, so you'll probably be able to find it okay on something like hallmark or something uh yeah if it's on watch it and so in two weeks we will be watching uh we were here which is from 2011 and reading two boys kissing by david leviton leviton whichever from this year I say levithan, levithan. Okay. okay you've met the guys so i will say your pronunciation <laughs> is probably correct well who knows <laughs> so we'll be back in two weeks uh, we hope you all had a good thanksgiving and see you then Bye-bye.